0: Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Long COVID, U.S.-China relations, a shift to greener energy policies, digital acceleration, and the risk of missing the post-COVID rebound. These are the top five risks for global business that Control Risks has identified this year. Think of them, if you will, as a set of lenses with which to view where we're headed. Today's episode is one of a five-part series in which we'll be exploring the regional impact of these global top five risks. And in this episode, we're turning our attention to Africa. Economic and political crises across Africa, in combination with the jolts of COVID 19, mean there's a lot to pay attention to in the region in 2021. But there's still cause for optimism, particularly in the area of African tech. And investors and businesses operating in the region should be as much on the lookout for opportunity as they are for risk. With me to discuss the impact and the nuance of our top five risks for 2021 in Africa are two of my colleagues. Barnaby Fletcher is an associate director who leads Control Risk's team of analysts for East and Southern Africa. Barney is an old hand at Control Risk's podcasting, but this is his first turn on the Global Insight. Barney, welcome. Hi, Chuck, great to be here. Valentin Robiliard is new to the Global Insights podcast. He's a Dakar-based analyst covering West and Central
1: Africa. Val, welcome. Thanks for having me, good to be here.
0: Barney, Val, let's just begin with our number one risk for the globe, but think about it in Africa. And that is all about the fact that the pandemic globally will be the primary driver of risk going forward. And just like COVID can infect the human body and stay there, it can infect the body politic and stay there for a while too. Tell us a little bit what long COVID may feel like in Africa.
1: Well, I think we feared the worst about a year ago and, and we're in a position where you know, Africa overall has been less affected than the rest of the world, whether it's because of past experience with pandemics, Ebola, and others, whether it's because it's a it's a younger population, what have you. But what we're seeing lately, and, and you know, d- despite the positive outlook overall, we've seen a second wave since December, with some countries reimposing restrictions, which we know are not very popular across the continent. And we're seeing some countries that are still struggling. You know, situation in South Africa remains quite complicated. So we're not out of the woods yet. And it will very much remain a key concern for Africa for, for much of the year.
2: I think what's quite interesting about this second wave that we're seeing is that it's varying quite a lot across the continent. So when the first wave came in we saw trends in how governments reacted and by and large with a few exceptions governments reacted incredibly quickly to lock down to impose travel bans i mean 15 countries in sub-saharan africa closed their borders before they confirmed a single case of covid-19 now, these new cases with the second wave are, are happening more in some countries than others. I don't have the exact figures, but it's something like 80 or 90% of the cases since the beginning of December have occurred in just 15 countries across the 54 countries in Africa. And governments are far less willing to reimpose lockdowns because of the financial cost. And so while there was a kind of broad trend and similarity in how governments were reacting the first time, Now what we're going to see throughout 2021 is kind of national lockdowns, localized lockdowns, and a lot more
0: uncertainty about where the restrictions are going to be when. We are now just maybe putting behind us a nasty vaccine access dispute between the UK, the EU, and AstraZeneca. I wonder what this tells us going forward about some of the sensitivities around vaccine distribution across borders. How is the vaccine gonna be distributed around Africa?
1: I think it's gonna take a a little while in Africa. There's been a few countries, a very small handful of countries. The Seychelles started a vaccination campaign in January helped by India and others, but that's the exception rather than the rule. We've heard quite a lot about the COVAX initiative to, to get vaccine doses to Africa. A lot of countries are relying on this. Some countries will be relying on some bilateral deals with other countries coming from Asia and, and, and other places. But a lot of these vaccines, you know, Africa's probably at the back of the supply chain. A lot of these vaccines probably won't come in until the second half of the year and then you're dealing with the logistics in the supply chain of having to keep those doses at a very low temperatures and, and many countries don't really have the infrastructure to get that done and so we're not really seeing this sort of mass vaccination campaigns and sort of herd immunity that we're expecting in europe we're not really seeing this to come out and and, and be effective in, in 2021 unfortunately
2: I think also what, I mean, I completely agree with what Val said. I think one of the interesting things that we can look out for is how this starts to impact on public sentiment and public attitudes towards their governments, because a lot of governments across Africa have been very ambitious, shall we say, in the schedules they have put forward for vaccination. A lot of governments are talking about vaccination starting in in April, May or earlier. And they may start then, but certainly not to any kind of level where the majority, your ordinary person in those countries, your ordinary citizen, your ordinary voters are going to get vaccinated. The amount of vaccines that they've secured through COVAX are, for the most part, sufficient only to vaccinate a tiny proportion of their populations. And that kind of anger and frustration when hopes are are not met, combined with a feeling that, oh, look, the rest of the world is getting their vaccines, could prove quite problematic for some governments.
0: Arnie, with the pressure on the public sector to perform, and and so far the track record is pretty mixed, will there be expectations or pressure on companies to vaccinate their own employees? I haven't seen yet many companies kind of really grapple with this problem because the
2: vaccines are not available in the amounts necessary for companies to be able to start thinking about, well, maybe we take it on board ourselves to vaccinate our employees, like some companies to offer flu jabs. You know, that is not an option right now. but. Coming into this, you know, certainly the second half of this year, when a lot of developed countries are well advanced along their vaccination programs. And as you say, Chuck, employees in other countries are are nowhere near getting a vaccination from the government. It'll be interesting to see. I think some companies will have to start to think about their duty of care, whether their duty of care involves privately vaccinating their employees.
1: You know, when Corona came in last year, there was a lot of discussions as to, you know, this is a sort of Western disease rather than an Africa-born disease. And some anxiety and sort of controversial discourse as to where coronavirus was from and, and you know, who, who could become sick and who were responsible for the, for the disease. And to some extent, the discussions around vaccine still exist in, in Africa, that there is some pushback for people not wanting to get vaccinated. So yes, there'll be expectations on the part of, of you know, African population feeling like they should get access to some vaccines, but you may also get people not wanting to get vaccinated. And if there are companies making moves one way or the other, that's that's going to be, I think, a, a dynamic worth remembering.
2: And all of those issues that Val just mentioned, the perceptions of the vaccine, the perceptions of COVID, whether anger that you know, they haven't got the vaccine or skepticism about the vaccine are probably all going to be exacerbated by the geopolitics of it all and not wanting to start a whole other tangent of conversation. But you have the Russian vaccine, the China vaccine, obviously various vaccines developed by Moderna and AstraZeneca and, and Pfizer. And there are signs that countries are starting to use this and supplies of vaccines for diplomatic geopolitical purposes, trying to gain influence. And that could all feed into to some of these narratives that are going
0: around. Arnie, thank you very much for dropping the word geopolitics into the conversation. That's the perfect setup for moving on to our risk number two, which is all about the relationship between the United States and China. With a change from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, we should see a little bit more stability in relations between Washington and Beijing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to get better. And in some respects, the ties between the two countries could get worse. What happens to Africa in the geopolitical tensions between Washington and Beijing?
1: The Trump administration definitely saw Africa through that lens of sort of U.S.-China reverie When Bolton and, and, and the U.S. government in late 2018 revealed their U.S.-Africa strategy and, and their Prosper Africa, which is the flagship program that every administration rolls out, China was all over the document. And it was clearly presented as sort of a counter strategy to the Belt and Road Initiative. So Trump definitely saw Africa within that narrative. The problem is he probably only saw the continent through that narrative. And the problem is the narrative wasn't necessarily followed by concrete actions. You know, a lot of people remember the expletives that Trump used to define some some countries around the world and, and obviously that, that the travel ban that, that affected a lot of African countries. But beyond that, a lot of the diplomatic positions in the continent weren't filled for quite a while. There were a lot of proposed budget cuts to Africa programs. The sort of the American voice on the continent kind of faded away in some ways which then gave countries like China, but also Russia and, and, and others the kind of space to gain influence in the, in the continent. I think where Biden fits in there, I think Biden sees that very much that same narrative and the need to compete with China. But he probably wants to take a different approach to it, probably less confrontational, probably more towards multilateral initiatives, whether it's with the UN agencies, WHO, the initiatives for vaccines that we've talked about, working with the EU and, and the European countries on counterterrorism. And in some ways, the sort of multilateral initiatives, trade initiatives in the continents that are taking place, also supporting those initiatives. So in some way, the competition with China won't change. In some ways, maybe a return to the sort of Obama era politics of U.S. and Africa, which isn't entirely surprising, considering a lot of the the veterans of the Obama administration are in the are in the Biden team as well.
2: I think that's a really key flaw that. Bell identified in in how the U.S. approaches Africa. Certainly, how it did under Trump and how it probably will continue to it sees it through this prism of competition with China. And there's something really quite outdated and simplistic about this idea of U.S.-China rivalry on the continent, for the simple reason that there are so many other players. And the US, unfortunately, is no longer that dominant player competing with China for influence. It's competing against the EU, it's competing against Russia and Turkey and the Gulf States and India and a post-Brexit Britain as well, which is trying to to have influence in, in Africa as well. And all of these players have gradually been increasing their efforts and the resources they pour into building their presence in Africa over the past, probably past decade at, at, at least. And what's been interesting about that competition is that it's also broken down this kind of simplistic view that, okay, China deals with Africa through commercial, you know, it it wants to build trade, it wants to to get investment opportunities, but it's not going to touch governance, it's going to allow governments to do what they want. And then on the other side, the US and other Western donors will give money to tackle corruption and improve governments, but they won't tie that to commercial opportunities. And actually, what we're seeing is China's becoming more and more concerned with government. You can see that in the last FOCAC, Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, and their priorities there. The US, through the Prosper Africa initiative that Bal mentioned, is you know that explicitly tied development assistance to commercial opportunities. The EU is going from its everything but arms unilateral trade preferences to Africa to economic partnership agreements, where they get something in return and are also trying to access these commercial opportunities. And... Biden, I completely agree with Val, is going to you know change some things in his approach and certainly change the tone of engagement with Africa, but is going to be pulled along in that same direction of having a more transactional and commercialized approach to its engagement with Africa and looking to translate its aid and its soft power and its influence into opportunities for its companies.
0: You mentioned growth opportunities in Africa, Barney, and and one of the big growth opportunities around the world fits in with our number three risk, and that is about the green recovery. And in a lot of parts of the world, companies and countries are essentially tripping over each other to make carbon neutral declarations and enact carbon free policies and practices. On the other hand, do development goals in Africa come ahead of environmental targets or, you know, how does Africa fit into the green recovery? My concern
2: with this, with the whole environmental agenda that we're seeing globally is that Africa gets left behind because a lot of governments in Africa are not prioritizing environmental goals. You know, South Africa is the only country that has a net zero pledge. Not because they don't care about it, because they think that other priorities, you know, they have limited funding and they're they're putting that towards other priorities, such as human development and sanitation and and whatever it may be, and all these needs that, that Africa definitely has. Now, there's no doubt that there's huge renewable potential in Africa, and not just that it's there, but it actually makes so much sense in countries where you have vast land areas with vastly... You know, dispersed population centers and transmission grids. The standard model of having a large thermal power plant with a big transmission grid covering the whole country doesn't really make sense. It's not efficient. So countries should be looking at microgrids, off-grid solutions, which require smaller generation, which can be easily done with renewables. That makes a lot of sense in Africa. But if governments are not willing Or to be fair, not able to give subsidies and incentives like a lot of other governments are for those renewable projects, then they risk not getting the investment potentially.
1: A lot of these large infrastructure programs or projects in Africa need financing. There are, you know, actors in Africa that can finance those kinds of big projects, but you still in a lot of places need to rely on external financing. Those sort of green, environmentally friendly initiatives often tie into broader political commercial games. And so I was thinking of Gabon because Gabon has got a whole environmentally eco-friendly program going on called Green Gabon because it's got a lot of forests in the country. But when you kind of dig into what they're doing. It it feels like it's it's feeding the narrative. It's feeding the relationship with Western countries. It's seeking support from Western countries to be environmentally friendly. And so it's not just purely an environmentally friendly stance. It's also playing into the the broader geopolitics and business in, in the region.
0: In his spare time, Barney is also our Africa tech guy. And Barney, our number four risk in the top five for 2021 is about digital acceleration. You've been writing about, you've been talking about African tech in recent years, and there's been some really spectacular growth in the sector. Is this a bubble? Is it hype? How do you spot the real opportunities?
2: There certainly is an element of Africa tech which has bubble-like characteristics, or at least had bubble-like characteristics before COVID-19 these remarkable growth figures you know triple digit increases in investment inflows year after year into Africa Tech also contained quite a large number of failures and some pretty high profile failures and these came hugely when investors or companies were coming in and trying to transplant some high-tech concept from elsewhere in the world into Africa while not taking into account the specific challenges that are present in a lot of these African markets the kind of this assumption that our high tech product can just bypass the low tech challenges. So e-commerce is a great example of this, right? So e-commerce has actually had some success during COVID because of the lockdowns, but before COVID, it really struggled to make an impact in the African market. And that's because if somebody buys something on an online platform, you still have to deliver it to that person on what is often really poor quality transport infrastructure right? And the most successful kind of Africa tech projects are not those that try to bypass these problems, but those that directly targeted these problems. So m pesa is the example everyone pulls up, but it is the example for a reason. The most successful mobile money platform, you know, arguably in the world, originated in East Africa. And that was the success because it directly targeted a problem that the market had, which was a lack of formal financial inclusion. And it did so in a way that was cognizant of the restrictions on your consumers. You know, you can use it on an ordinary phone. You don't need a fancy smartphone to engage in mobile online banking. And so it is huge success. And it kind of points to the fact that successes in African tech are not driven by some Silicon Valley ideology of disruption, but are driven by simple need. Now, COVID-19 has, in one respect, has a silver lining, especially for Afghatech, in that it has made those needs very, very obvious. You know, the problem, inadequate healthcare, you know, in many countries, the fact that many countries still import so many of their basic consumer goods, and restrictions such as border closures imposed because of COVID-19 has caused huge disruptions to supply chains. And so what we're seeing is tech really respond. We're seeing, you know, digital healthcare apps, we're seeing WhatsApp and other social media platforms being used to spread information or self-assessment tests for for COVID-19. We're seeing efforts to digitalize supply chain. We're seeing the African Union support Panabios, which is a kind of cross-border biological tracing and contact tracing app, uh, uh, effectively. And yes, Africa Tech was exciting before, but there was also a lot of hype and projects in there that were just getting money because they were part of Africa Tech. And what was seen in COVID is arguably Africa Tech really come into its own and show that it is not just kind of hype that it actually solves real world problems.
1: Yeah, just listening to Barney here, Barney, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the one thing I was thinking about is, is Jumia, which you know often has been seen as the so the African Amazon. But which I think took a couple of years to really pick up. I think it fed this idea that they just copy pasted a concept and a business that was very much you know successful in in, in the Western world and copy pasting it into the you know African supply chains and Af- African customers. And it you know it took a while to really pick up because I guess you know it wasn't necessarily responding to that problem in the first place, and maybe the landscape and the environment wasn't necessarily fit for that kind of business. It's doing better now, but I think it took a couple of years to really pick up.
2: Well, what's really interesting about Jameer, it's a brilliant example, is that why it's doing better now is for three things. One, because it's an e-commerce platform and lockdowns because of COVID has helped e-commerce in Africa, but also because it's focused on online payment systems and logistics systems. And of course, that's what you need for an e-commerce company. And in many jurisdictions around the world, you can assume that online payment systems already there and logistics is not a problem, but they've really had to build those up from scratch. And now they've built those, those are proving valuable assets, but they're kind of side businesses to its original just e-commerce platform.
0: Guys, let's try to end a little bit where we began and look at number five for the world and think about it in Africa. And that is the notion that companies may actually miss the rebound and that for companies that are still stuck in crisis management mode or for companies that have difficulty navigating this patchwork exit from the pandemic you know we do expect some sort of uplift in economic activity globally in the second half of the year and you know we've discussed all the caveats to that but what do we need to think about what do companies need to look for how do you prepare for Africa's exit from the pandemic and make sure that, that a company is there when the moment arrives?
2: I think first point I'd make, and perhaps not the most positive point, so let's get it out of the way at the beginning of the answer, is that Africa's recovery in 2021 is probably going to be a lot slower than other regions of the world. And this is for a really simple reason that governments do not have the fiscal headroom necessary to engage in prolonged stimulus spending. You look at the huge amounts of money being spent by European countries, by the U.S. to boost a private sector, which is already well-developed, and then compare that to you know, Mozambique or Central African Republic or Senegal or wherever it may be, that just cannot spend even a tiny fraction of that amount. And so are reliant on private sectors for recovery and private sectors that are pretty underdeveloped. The recovery, I think, is going to be slow, and that's not even you know taking into account the fact that vaccine rollouts are going to be slower in Africa, restrictions may stay in place longer, et cetera, et cetera.
1: The one thing I'd add to this is, you know, in some ways it's a plus and a and a, and a minus in the sense that, you know, a lot of countries that are, that are struggling financially may be looking for easy cash. And that was a concern as to if you're struggling, where can we get some some revenues and companies kind of worried that they'll become sort of the easy targets for, you know, tax collection. And, and there's been some countries that have been promising to sort of strengthen their, their tax collection capabilities. The positive to this is you also have countries who realize that the private sector will be key to, to that economic recovery and actually may not want to, you know, scare off investors and, and, and in some ways enhance and favor investment, which means that there'll be countries where, you know, there might be markets and, and, and sectors where companies will have new opportunities and, and should definitely sort of capture those opportunities because they will be key actors in that recovery.
2: Even before the pandemic, you were seeing a drive by governments in you know, South Africa and Zambia and Mozambique and Angola and Ethiopia to kind of liberalize the economy, to reduce the state's role, to wholly or partially privatize state-owned enterprises, to rely more on concession morals or, or public-private partnerships for building infrastructure. And these trends that we're already seeing in most countries, not in all, but in most countries are probably only going to be exacerbated by the, the financial constraints that governments are finding after COVID. You've already seen it accelerate the privatization process in Angola, for example, because that's how governments continue to develop, continue to grow out of the recovery, continue to build infrastructure in an age where post-pandemic, they don't have much money themselves. And while that raises problems for a lot of countries, it also creates opportunities for investors.
0: Fantastic. Arnie Fletcher, thank you very, very much for the remarks on Eastern and Southern Africa, and great to have you back podcasting for Control Risks. Thank you, Chuck. Val, a great debut on The Global Insight. Thank you very much for joining us. Come back soon.
1: Thanks very much, Chuck. Looking forward to more of those.
0: That's all for this special edition of The Global Insight. Tune in tomorrow for a look at the top five in the Middle East and North Africa. You can also visit controlrisks.com for our full Risk Map 2021 forecast, which includes our top five risks, key topics picked by our analysts, a calendar of geopolitical events throughout the year, and the actual map of political and security risks for 2021, which is where the name Risk Map comes from to begin with. Thank you, and bye for now.